What's up, everybody? It is South Beach Nico here on a lovely Monday in St. Petersburg, Florida. This past weekend, it was the Rolex 24-hour race at Daytona. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go, but I had a buddy over there who's named Nick as well, and he said it was a great time. He was down in the pits around the drivers and the teams and the cars, and it looked like a blast. So next year, I'm hoping to go. I wasn't able to come this year just because some things came up. But uh, in honor of the 24-hour race of Daytona, the Rolex, we are going to re-release the Mario Andretti podcast from two years ago. Still one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. He's one of my heroes, and maybe you haven't heard the podcast yet because you didn't follow us two years ago, or maybe you have already heard it and you want to listen again. So either way, I want to hear it again, so I'm going to re-release it, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, reliving this conversation and, you know gearing up for NASCAR season. All the all the racing's coming back soon. I'm really stoked about it. So here we are again, Mario Andretti re-release on For the Ladies podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, just want to pop in here real quick. It is South Beach Nico and I wanted to say For the Ladies podcast is brought to you by The Galley and the Ship's Hold. St. Pete's favorite place for great food, great cocktails, and great staff. A lot of my really good friends work here, but that's not why I go all the time. (laughs) If you're a rum person like me, they have hundreds of different rums, a very knowledgeable staff, and amazing food that they have till 3 o'clock in the morning, seven days a week. You can walk in at 2.30 and be like, hey man, I'm really hungry. (laughs) So appreciate the ship's hold and Galley for being a part of For the Ladies podcast. It's hosted a lot of our podcast episodes so far and love working with the people over there. Go in, ask for the Joey special, and tell them Nico from For the Ladies Podcast sent you. Good morning, Mario Andretti's office. Hi, this is Nick with For the Ladies Podcast. Um, I've got a podcast with Mario at one or at 10, sorry. Yeah, just a moment, please. Thank you so much. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you doing, Mario? Wonderful, thank you. I appreciate you doing this so much. You have no idea. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> um, yeah, sir. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're a bit faint, but uh, I can hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, we had a uh, weird power surge down here in St. Petersburg, Florida yesterday, so sorting out the audio right now. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Was bad weather or something? I don't know. I mean, you were down here last week, right? It was pretty cold, so it might have been the cold. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the wires got cold. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Michigan, but this 50-degree weather in St. Pete is kind of cold for me now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. I know. When we're in Florida, I mean, when it's down to 60 degrees, the first come out. Yeah. Honestly. And the problem is you don't have enough winter wear like to get around, so you got to wear the same hoodie every day. <laughs> but you know something? I was in Daytona this past weekend, and uh, the 24 hours there, mm-hmm. and uh, I was never so cold in my life. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought I brought, you know, a uh, heavy enough jacket and so forth, and uh, probably should add another layer, but, uh, but it was just the wind was just cutting, and you know what? 
uh, I was cold, cold, cold because we had a lot of events going on outside and they, you know, you had to endure it. You had no other choice. Yeah. And, and, uh, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was not pleasant at all. <laughs> now, did, did you stay for the whole 24 hours? No, no, I was uh, one of the marshals for the race. They were celebrated 60th anniversary of the race. So they had uh, a, a race winner for each decade. So so I was one of them. And uh, they, there were six of us as uh, race marshals. And uh, it was fun. It was, uh, re- it was a hell of a race. Yeah, it was. But, I, but it did after the start. I left. I, had to, I, I couldn't stay, but... Uh, uh, there's no way that I was going to endure that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back to my hotel room and watch it on TV, so I might as well be home. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, I mean, I've got some questions for you, obviously, but first off, what's it like running a 24-hour race, just since we're on the topic? Well, you know, it's when it comes to, uh, you know, it's 24 hours, it tells you, you know, that in itself, you know, like uh, uh, you don't have much, even though you have co-drivers and so forth, uh, I'll go back when uh, when I started, uh, you know, when my first 24-hour event was in 1966, first at uh, Daytona and then Le Mans the same year. And uh, in those days, you only had two drivers. Mm-hmm. Now they have four drivers, you know, usually. And so it's, uh, you know, makes it a little bit, but a bit easier. However, uh, you're just, uh, you're on call all the time. And, uh, and, and again, uh, I never realized how long 24 hours was until I started racing <laughs> those events. It, it's forever. And, uh, you know, usually you do a stint, two stints, three stints sometimes. And, and that's, that's the usual, you know, uh, one race event per weekend, you know, what you're used to. Mm. But uh, here you do those and then you go rest a little bit and you're right at it again. You know, so uh, physically, it, it picks everything out of you. I mean, uh, when we did it in two drivers alone, it was brutal. It was brutal. That, that's uh, a mean, long you time. You came away with, uh, you know, you didn't have any, you had about 10 ounces of uh, energy left. <laughs> Well, so then, like, especially if you win, how are you going to celebrate now? You're exhausted. Well, you know, uh, however, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you're on that podium, uh, uh, you can, you know, you can get the energy up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's all adrenaline-driven, you know. Oh, yeah. And, uh, that, that, uh, that's the difference. Now, would you drink, like, a cup of coffee or anything while you were resting or getting ready to go? Well, uh, usually... You try to arm yourself with a physio, somebody that uh, uh, really knows what uh, what you need, and uh, and it's gotten to be much much more sophisticated, you mm-hmm. know, as uh, you know as, as the years went on, and you know the sport has has evolved, uh, you know, uh, of course, just like all other sport professional sports, and uh, and you just uh, you know you just make sure you uh, you you're. Uh, Feed yourself, you know, that yeah. you stay uh, hydrated, in, you know, and every with the proper, uh, you know, with the proper fluids and all that, and uh, you know, all those things are very important. I mean, uh, just like a, an engine, the body needs to have all the right stuff in it, 
uh, to operate at the top level. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's what you uh, you want to make sure you do. You, you do, and, and it's an individual program, by the way. Not uh, it's not that uh, everything works the same across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, the certain drivers, you know, uh, have different uh, needs and, um, and preferences and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, it's a big deal, you know, to do the right thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and so before I ask you the questions I got for you, I just want to say. Um, the first diecast I owned, like a NASCAR diecast, was John Andretti's number forty-three car. So, <laughs> love John. He was a great race car driver, and it was very sad to see him go. He was a good kid. Yeah, he was uh, very untimely. You know, he had so much more to live for, and wonderful family too, and all of that. It's, yeah, yeah, it's one of the sad stories. But, I mean, he made an impact on me. I'm 30 now, but he made an impact on me when I was, man, 12 years old. <laughs> so, as did you, um, honestly, just growing up, learning about racing. It's, I mean, you were a huge influence, especially the research I got to do the other week or two that I've um, talked with Patty, who's your publicist, and she's fantastic. You were an inspiration. Um, I had no idea, and I don't think a lot of people do, that, you were in a refugee camp living with your family for a while before you came to America. Well, yes, I mean, it's, uh, we were a product of World War II, you know, and uh, uh, what we suffered is that um, uh, where I was born uh, and raised was uh, just the periphery of, uh, of Italy, uh, you know, one of the regions that uh, uh, was... Uh, got overcome by, uh, you know, at the end of the war, they, Italy lost the war and they lost uh, that particular region and it was uh, became occupied by Yugoslavia, hardline communism. Uh, you know, Russia, along with one of the countries that uh, uh, that won the war and it was between Russia, U.S., France, and the uh, U.K., they made that decision where the borders should be realigned and uh, we were trapped inside, and um, there was a choice to come to communism or leave, and uh, we became refugees in our own country for seven and a half years in, uh, in Tuscany and before we, uh, we came to the States. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's another one of those situations where it seemed like, um, you know, a real, you know, a huge negative, which it was, of course, you know, my Dad lost everything, all this family holdings, which was uh, 2,100 acres uh, of land with, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, that the family owned and, and, and cultivated, and uh, lost all of that. And uh, But, but you know, it's, um, thinking positively, uh, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to come to America, and, uh, and a whole new world opened up. You know, for for us kids, especially uh, my twin brother Aldo, my sister Anna Maria, that uh, opportunities came up, and uh, you know, for Aldo and I to, uh, to pursue our dream that began in Italy, you know, uh, become race drivers. I think that uh, it probably would not have happened uh, as easily uh, if we would have remained in Italy. So here again, you know negative becoming a positive so uh, when you look back that's the way my life has been in so many ways 
Um, uh, and, and I think uh, there was something to learn from there, and, uh, and I kept that, you know. You're never down, you know. There's always something in the horizon, and uh, if, you, if you stay, you know, if you look at the, uh, if you don't dwell on the negative, that's what I'm saying. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, we certainly seemed like we were victims, but we became victors. That's the way I look at. It. I like that. That's great. And honestly, you guys moved here. Your whole family came over, and you said it, or your dad said it was going to be a five-year thing originally. Yeah, it's uh, my. Uh, we had uh, corresponding. Uh, we, you know, we were corresponding with an uncle that uh, had immigrated. You know, many years before to the state, and uh, while we were, you know, in the refugee camp, and uh, and so we arrived at the refugee camp in 1948 three years after the end of the war. And you know, that's when all these things happened. And, uh, and in 1952, my uncle uh, suggested my dad, why don't you apply for visas and, and come to the States if things don't get any better in Italy. Um, and, you know, Italy, like, you know, all, all the European countries were involved were kind of a mess for a long time. Um, it says, uh, come to America. So my dad applied for visas in 52. And three years later, the visas came through, and my dad had almost forgotten about it. <laughs> and then he said, well, it says, looks like we're going to America, and uh, we'll probably go there for five years and then come back. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how he broke the news to us, to us kids. And uh, uh, we were just teenagers then, and uh, my sister was six years older than us, so she understood a little better, but she was very excited. and. Uh, and that's it. That's how it happened. Uh, but uh, we never looked back, however, once we came here. That's great. And honestly, I love your attitude towards all of it. And appreciate your father for doing that, because it sounds like he was making the best of every situation. And it seems to have rubbed off on you, and I'm sure your brother Aldo and your sister Anna Maria. I uh, learned a lot from my dad. You know, and like I said, uh, in the face of a lot of adversities, uh, he... Uh, he never, he never really felt like a victim per se. You know, he just, uh, he always did the best thing. And for us, we always, you know, we went to school, the best schools while we were there at campus. And, uh, and uh, we were never cold. We were always well-dressed. And, uh, and, and that's it. We never suffered in any way. And they provided for us. And so, again, the something that we learned from there you know he uh he made do i mean yeah, that's great that that honestly reminds me of my dad too honestly so i really like loved seeing all those interviews you did talking about your dad and reading about him and he sounded like a great human being oh again you know he was my dad and he was my hero yeah question so can you tell me about the first time you and aldo saw a race car or got in a race car? Well, here's the thing that uh, when we arrived here, uh, I got to tell you the story, it was, uh, it was the middle of June, 1955. And so uh, here in Nazareth, we were, uh, we arrived on a Thursday and uh, Sunday night, we were just hanging out at my uncle's house. And, uh, and all of a sudden in the background uh, that evening, 
we see, you know, bright lights, and then uh, all of a sudden there was a big roar of engines. And Aldo and I looked at each other and figured, whoa, you know, so we booked, we followed the noise, and uh, at the edge of town there was a fairgrounds, and they, they were running uh, uh, week, weekly stock car races, you know, on Sunday night. And, uh, and that's the first time we witnessed something like that, um, you know, on the dirt tracks, you know, we never knew about dirt tracks uh, in Italy. And now uh, we were enamored with Formula One, you know, in those days, uh, uh, you know, the 50s, early 50s, that uh, current world champions. Then you had, you know, the Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, you know, the big brands that uh, were involved in Formula One. So that's what we had seen, you know, much more sophisticated, but... The beautiful thing about uh, looking at these stock cars, we were just peeking through the fence. We said, man, this thing is doable, you know? We looked at each other. Two years later, we started building one with uh, four other buddies. You know, we started building one to, to, to race there. And uh, and two years after that, in 1959, uh, at age 19, uh, we started racing there. And, uh, and that's when my career started, basically, and never looked back. Wow. But were you 19 or were you 21? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> we were supposed to be 21. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it, uh, you had to be 21 to race professionally in those days. Uh, in, I guess insurance factor and all that, but that was the, those were the rules. And... Uh, and, the, and when we started building the car in 1957, we felt, okay, well, we got four years, you know, so we got time. And, but we finished the car in two years, so we figured we're not going to wait. So um, we, along the way, we used to work at, the, you know, after school in my uncle's gas station there. And, and we befriended the uh, local editor of the newspaper, you know, uh, the Nazareth Key. Uh, less young and we uh, said less uh, you have to do something with our birth date on our license on our driver's license and uh, so he did a good job on that day <clears throat> and all of a sudden we were 21 <laughs> and uh, and I had a tough time uh, spelling that because uh, uh, you know by the time I reached 21 I didn't want to be 23 I wanted to be 21 right. <laughs> and uh so uh, that was a saga, you know, but uh, it, it may do a work for us, you know, because uh, we were, you know, we were winning some races, Aldo and I, and and, uh, and things were happening the right way, uh, quite honestly, which is, uh, you know, we win some races, that's all you're, that, that's what you're striving for, and uh, all of that was happening to us. So you guys started racing on the dirt track over in Nazareth, right? Yeah, and then it. how did you how did you build your career from there? Well, the objective, you know, was always to um, to progress. Um, I would say, you know, I thought we started like uh, in first grade, and then you got to go second, third grade until you reach the university, and uh, and that's really what it was. I uh, I you know I, I stayed in, uh, in stock cars uh, for two years. Because of the age factor, and I feel felt by the time I uh, I, I am legal 21, uh, I think that uh, you know I might have to be uh, 
I'm gonna have to actually be that, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, so my objective was to get uh, uh, to get into open wheel, single seaters, midgets, and sprint cars, and then go on and uh, and also arrive at the top level here in, in uh, uh, Indy cars. That was the objective all along, and uh, and it was it was happening exactly uh, the way uh, I had hoped because uh, you know it's uh, after. The second year, um, Aldo continued. My brother Aldo, he had the tough time at the end of uh, the first year. He had a, uh, a very serious accident in the very last race of the first year in '59, and and he took a sabbatical through '60, and in '61 he continued driving our car, but I moved on to midget, and then um, so I went. You know, we got into a three quarter midgets and uh, which was in the winter and that was a really good scouting area getting some full size midgets and I and that winter I won the biggest race they had the season was in Teaneck, New Jersey the 100 lapper and uh, one of the icons of the year at the time in midgets was the Len Duncan he finished second to me that was that launched me that earned me a ride in a full size midget with the Mateka brothers uh, and uh, and then I, you know, I won races there in ARDC, which was the premier major racing series in the United States. Even the head, it was uh, better known and considered stronger than the USAC midgets even. And, uh, and so, and from there, I, uh, I earned a ride in a sprint car in USAC, and then I started winning there. And then, uh, you know, when if you're winning, people take notice and... Uh, then uh, an opportunity came, you know, where uh, in 64, uh, I was pretty much ready to graduate, but, uh, uh, you know, there was no room at the end, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to wait for something to happen, and and uh, I, you know, I was there ready uh, to uh, take advantage of situations. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there was an uh, uh, injury, you know, one of the top teams, uh, the Dean Van Lines team uh, with Chuck Hall, uh, uh, you know, had a career-ending uh, accident in one of the sprint car races, and they were looking for for drivers, uh, you know, to, to replace them. And my name was out there. But also, believe it or not, uh, the first test they were going to give, which was in Trenton, New Jersey, during the Firestone Tire Test, uh, the guy that was up... Uh, for the test before me was Roger Penske. No way. Yeah, yeah, he always says, you know, Mario, you know, you should thank me because uh, he had something else going. Roger was always, you know, he always had uh, a lot of irons in the fire. Mm. And uh, and all of a sudden he couldn't make the test. He had some conflict. And uh, so they, um, that's it, you know, there I was, you know, ready to go. And, and I got the opportunity, so. Uh, here again, you know, <laughs> wow. uh, negative create a positive, and uh, and at that test, uh, I guess I impressed enough the uh, Firestone engineers that uh, they said, you know, I think we uh, we like what we see. Uh, what was happening is that uh, during that test, uh, you know, I was uh, brutally honest with the input that I was giving, you know, um, and they 
they like that because sometimes, uh, you know, that test was Roger Ward, you know, veterans like Roger Ward, Parnelli Jones. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, they feel the veterans tell the engineers what they want to hear rather than the real thing. I don't know, there's something to that. Sometimes uh, there's, uh, uh, they're a bit confused with the feedback. And, and uh, with me, they felt that, uh, you know, I was down like it was. And uh, so, uh, it was a great beginning because uh, they figured, well, you know, we'll continue with this kid. You know, it's a good mix among the veterans. And uh, and that turned out to be a total blessing for me because, uh, you know, uh, getting the opportunity to do so much running, so much testing, uh, it was also honing my skills as well. It was really working for me. Uh, I will fire some a great deal, believe me, uh, and, and especially during my formative years. You know, to have those opportunities and uh, I developed uh, one of the best relationships ever, you know, with Firestone throughout uh, this, this period. Um, and so one thing, you know, led to another, quite honestly. And and, uh, and, and it all worked out, you know. By, by the time I got, uh, I was officially a rookie at Indianapolis, you know, my very first year, I won the championship. Hmm. I was the youngest one to do so. Uh, so... That didn't hurt me at all. Not at all. uh, Yeah, it opened up, you know, uh, a lot of uh, opportunities for me um, to join, you know, like Ford was going into the Le Mans program. And here again, um, I was ready and available at all of their tests, which were, uh, they were very, very ambitious. Uh, They wanted to win the Mans at all costs. I mean, even the movie, you know, Ford versus Ferrari, it's Mm. all about that. And uh, I was one of the drivers that uh, I committed to be at every one of their tests, which was all the time I was uh, I was in the race car. And uh, so all of that helped me tremendously to start honing my skill into road racing. And, uh, you know, it's even, but I, road racing is something that uh, was always, uh, you know, premier in my mind. Uh, because ultimately, you know, my ultimate dream was to uh, get into Formula One, you know, to, uh, to try to emulate my real, uh, my first uh, idol, Alberto Scotti, uh, who was world champion when I just became and fell in love with the sport. And uh, so because even to, to go back uh, in midgets, uh, there was one road race that... Uh, that season was run, you know, we had like 44 races that season and, uh, and one road race in Lime Rock, Connecticut. Uh, and I won that. And then in 65, when I was in IndyCar, Champ Cars, there was one road race, you know, the, the whole season was dirt track, you know, counted for the championship and, and short ovals, paved ovals. And they had one road race and I won that. Wow. I won the road race, and uh, so you could see that uh, that's where my objectives were. And joining, having the opportunity to join Ford for their Le Mans program was golden for me because uh, all of the hours and hours of driving that I was able to do on the road course. And uh, I remember in 65 um, when I was uh, Rookie of the Year, finished third at Indy, and uh, 
and I befriended Colin Chapman and uh, Jim Clark. You know, Jim Clark won the race that year. And uh, at the the end of the after the banquet after the race, um, I told Colin Chapman. You know, we're saying our goodbyes. Uh, I said, someday, Colin, I would like to do Formula One. And he said these exact words. He said, Mario, when you think you're ready, you call me and I will have a car for you. Hmm. Now, can you imagine, you know, how yeah. I felt at that moment? You know, so that, that's what gave me all the incentive possible, you know, to uh, try to just hone my skills in road racing. And, uh, and you know, in 66, 67, 68, 68 I, I was winning, you know, a lot of the road races, and they were actually, like in 68, I think it was Dan Gurney, between Dan Gurney and I, Dan Gurney was uh, moonlighting uh, in Indy cars after, you know, it was, of course, in Formula One, so he was a great yardstick for me, and uh, a lot of the road races were between he and I, and, and then uh, in 68, I called Colin, so I'd like to do the last two races of the year. And he says, right, this, I will have a car for you. And that, that was the opportunity there to do Formula One. That's incredible. Well, how did you end up in the Daytona 500 then? Well, I had, uh, as I said earlier, I developed a, a great relationship with Ford, you know, with uh, their racing programs because it started in 65 when uh, we were one of the first teams to... Uh, to have the um, uh, you know the four double overhead cam engine, which was very sophisticated engine for Indy and for the whole you know for the whole uh, IndyCar series, and then uh, being uh, also part of the Le Mans program, I always expressed you know my desire to do something else. I was very curious. I wanted to follow the footsteps of some of the other champions at the time, like A.J. Foyt, Pernelli Jones, and so forth, who was venturing into stock cars, and and that's when um, I said, oh, I'd like to do a Daytona 500, you know, so on this and that, and they put me with uh, their factory team, which was Holman and Moody, and that's how I wound up doing that, and, and then, Lord and behold, you know, I just, uh, I go in and win that one, you know, <laughs> so that was, uh, that didn't hurt either, you know, so. Uh, these are all things that uh, plateaus that you reach that uh, reinforce your position, you know, in the sport. And then, it, then it, the biggest thing that you derive from that is the fact that uh, uh, you will be invited to top teams. That's the key for everything. You know, it's uh, you can't do it without that. You know, I don't care how good you might think you are or anyone. Uh, you gotta have the team. You gotta have the the, the the car that's capable of getting the job done, and then it's up to you. But uh, uh, you cannot make up the difference that's lacking, you know, in the car's performance. And and I've had that opportunity along the way, you know, to uh, usually be with top teams, which which was the key, you know, that that was the key of everything. Can't do it alone. It's a team sport. Team, team, team with a capital T. Absolutely. Um, so I want to get to F1 in a second, but I want to ask you about running at Daytona because I listen to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s podcast a lot, and he talks about the time that his dad called him and he said, hey, bring your uh, fire suit and helmet, meet me at Talladega. 
He's like, okay, cool. And so Dale told him to just, like, run it wide open, and he's coming up to turn three at Talladega. And he's like, there's no way I can't lift. Like, I have to lift here. The car's not going to stick. Did you have that experience at all, like, when you got to a big track for the first time? Well, yeah. Uh, the one good thing that uh, I had some experience on the banking because we, we did a lot of testing with the, um, with the Le Mans program cars, which... Uh, you know, we were running the road course, but also we were running the banking, you know, for a lot of it. And uh, in those days on, on the Daytona road course, they didn't have the chicane, which is called the bus stop, at the end of the back straightaway, you know, to slow the cars down to the bank. We were flat out, you know, on the banking. So I had that feel for the banking. So that, that helped me quite a bit. And uh, but. But with the stock car in those days, you know, that they, they didn't have plate racing. So in those days, we had uh, a lot more horsepower, probably uh, almost 300 more horsepower than they have today. And so on the straight line, we were a lot faster than today's cars. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's no way you could do a flat, not even qualifying. Oh, yeah. So it was a totally different way of driving the bank in those days. Uh, today, just uh, if you're by yourself, uh, uh, even at chief mechanic can do the, the, the uh, you know, the Tona Talladega flat. I mean, you put anybody, anybody that knows a little bit about it. But in those days, it was different. The cars were not as sophisticated, of course, as today. And um, we had a lot more straight line speed. So you were driving through the corners, even though the banks were there. And uh, so it was a different situation. Uh, and quite honestly, I think even more satisfying because there's a lot more luck involved today than there was then. I think in those days you were really driving the car, mm-hmm. um, you know. So uh, anyway, uh, that's the thing. Today is about avoiding the big wreck. <laughs> yeah, you know? they're so, they're they're so, so bunched up. up. Yeah. You know? yeah, can't get away from anybody, yeah. <laughs> Are you going to the Daytona 500, by the way? I don't know yet. I'm uh, depending. I usually go to some of the events if I have a, a business reason to be there. I'm not. I'm not a tourist, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a sport. Um, you know, it's uh, it's work for me, and uh, and I don't know. I mean, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But at the moment, uh, I it's uh, not on my schedule. Okay. Um... But I it, I'm going to be very curious because. Uh, of the you know the the, the new cars that uh, uh, that are going to be racing this year and and uh, it's going to be a lot more of a safe level playing field uh, because you don't have the data that uh, you know everybody had up to now you know with the equipment they've been running for you know on and off for years even though with the slight difference in the aero package but uh, uh, the new uh, the next generation cars are are very different for everybody. It'd be interesting to see, you know, uh, how everybody deals with them uh, during the race itself, because uh, uh, I don't care. You can test until the cows come on, but uh, the real proof of the pudding is when you're in the race, you got, you know, 40 plus cars around you. So, uh, so again, but uh, that, that's the anxiety that uh, what we're all fans looking forward to. Yeah, that plays 
I think it's kind of interesting with the next-gen test, though, that you see guys just spinning out and losing control. Like, Kyle Busch, who's one of the greatest NASCAR drivers that has ever driven, like, he's just spinning out. Yeah, nobody has better control of the car than Kyle Busch, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, down in Charlotte, a lot of the tests, I mean, uh, some of these guys on their own spinning out. So there's something to be said for uh, what needs to be, you know, what they have to learn about the car. It's a different beast, for sure. Uh, and that's why I think it's um, for us to have a little more knowledge about the textbook side. Uh, be very interesting to see how that plays out. You know, uh, I'm sure they were trying a lot of crazy things, you know, uh, uh, over there, but um, but some of the spins that I've seen by uh, some of the top talents there, it was uh, kind of uh, interesting. You know, that's a, yeah, that's what I thought about it too. Um, so you progress from winning the Daytona 500, one of the biggest races in the world. You finally get to F1. How was that experience? Well, here again, it, uh, it turned out to be a very auspicious beginning because uh, uh, I was on pole in my very first race, uh, you know, at Watkins Glen. Um, and, and again, here, uh, here it is. I mean, uh, I beat my teammate, which was Graham Hill, and my two teammates, and then uh, and Jackie Stewart, who was current world champion, was next to me, you know, so it couldn't be any better than that. You know, as far as, uh, you know, a rookie, rookie beginning in Formula One. So um, the car, the Formula One car really felt good to me right away. For some reason, I just really felt like, oh, my God, this is, you know, this is my rodeo, you know. And, um, and uh, I had the opportunity to test the car in Italy in Monza before the Glen and run, and I was quick. I was quick there doing the test. So uh, when I got to the Glen, I never, I never seen the Glen even. You know, a lot of people say, oh, okay, he's an American, you know, he knows the Glen. I never been there. Wow. And, uh, and then to be able to put the car on pole was really something. I never thought that was going to happen, but, uh, but it did. And uh, here again, you know, look another uh, event in my life, in my career that, uh, you know, was... Uh, Golden for me, you know, to be able to uh, continue and then uh, and and you know just uh, cultivate a reputation that earned me, you know, good rides along the way. Because uh, my very first win was in South Africa three years later, with uh, a couple of years, three years later, in '71, uh, with Ferrari, you know, and here it is, you know, one of the top teams again. Um, so. Story really, uh, it all began for me in Formula One. So, I I feel like when you were driving in Indy, you were driving in Daytona. You were, you said honing your skills to get to F one. I feel like was uh, you said that was your objective. When you got to F one, was it kind of like okay, I'm here now. What do I do? Or was it continuing to build and be better from that? You always coming. There's always. I, I was building until my very last day in the race car. You never, you never really feel like uh, you got it all. Uh, there's always something. You learn something. There's always so much to continue to learn, and uh, you gotta keep that in mind. Keep that uh, your mind wide open for that. Um, you know that um, uh, 
thing about even to go back about Daytona, you know, that uh, after winning the, the Daytona 500, you know, uh, two weeks later, I won uh, the, the Sebring 12 hour with Ford, you know, at, um, with uh, Bruce McLaren. And, uh, and that was a 67 again, you know, so uh, that was golden for me, you know, to win the Super Speedway race and then win a road road race, you know, so that's what I thought I was ready for Formula One, but uh, but that was just the beginning, and uh, and again, after winning my first race in Formula One in 71, Ferrari uh, offered me a, a ride, a uh, full-time drive for Ferrari as the number one driver, but uh, I, I couldn't really do it because of my contracts in IndyCar, and uh, at the time was almost a question of earning power. There was not much earning power in Formula One, and uh, and I wanted to be sure that I I could not overlook that side of it because uh, you know safety was not what we're enjoying today, believe me. And uh, and I always thought that uh, I had a responsibility to my family. I had a young family, and uh, and I figured something happened to me. Uh, got to make sure that the family's taken care of uh, forever. So uh, I had, you know, some some good contracts here financially, and uh, I couldn't give that up yet. So that's why I didn't go into Formula One full-time, you know, uh, right at the beginning. Uh, uh, I just, um, you know, I, I don't have any regrets either. You know, I uh, look, look back because uh, uh, a lot of good things happened to me along the way. And then by the time I decided to go full-time Formula One, um, I felt that uh, we were in pretty good shape on the other side, and uh, I could afford to do that. That's good. Um, you talked about the safety and how it was. How It was so dangerous to race back then. Like, Well, you know, it, uh, we knew what we knew. You know, it's... Uh, uh, in those days, you know, you look at uh, the primarily function of the engineer was to look for performance, you know, and then, uh, okay, you put a driver in there, but, uh, you know, there was, uh, uh, there were no real uh, rules uh, that um, controlled the safety aspect. But this is something that uh, uh, came on gradually. And us as drivers, we had to organize to try to, uh, to force, uh, you know, some of those features in the race cars, and because every safety feature in a race car is a performance penalty, whether it's weight or aerodynamics, so it had to be, uh, you know, it had to be part of the rule book, you know, to uh, enforce every team to include those features, and, and it took a long time for the sanctioning bodies to really embrace all that and becoming more responsible and uh, and uh, but you know but it did it happened but uh, not not during the uh, 70s 80s it was getting better in the 90s and then uh, then it gets better and better but still I mean uh, it was, you know a lot to be desired you know there's nothing compared to what uh, they're enjoying today uh, so uh, again but we knew what we knew at the time I think uh, you know, every year we progressed a little bit, and that was state of the art every year. 
but uh, I mean, even today, it's a work in progress, safety, uh, because uh, each incident is different, and uh, and so today the cars are even instrumented as to uh, any you know very serious incident, you know, you know what uh, what failed or whatever, and then they they try to you know to uh, you know to, to interject a rule or something that will fix that for the following year's car and all that. So there was, we <laughs> crash testing a race car in a tub was unheard of until, you know, very recently, you know. So again, uh, like anything else, the sport has become more and more technical in every way, but also uh, a lot of attention, incredible amount of attention is, uh, is devoted to the safety aspect. You see that open wheel cars now and they're not even open to have a Formula One they got a halo and Indy mm-hmm. cars that have a big screen stuff like that so all those things were you know. and, and the halo came in handy for the Lewis Hamilton Lewis Hamilton wreck this year well yeah I mean it, a couple times uh, I mean uh, uh, Roman Grosjean is uh, actually uh, in uh, Bahrain uh, when he went under a guardrail, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, that would definitely would have been the final event for him. And uh, he, but he was saved by that halo, you know. So yeah, yeah, no question that uh, uh, all those features, uh, you know, uh, sooner or later, you know, become very valuable. And these guys get a chance to race another day, uh, you know. Some of those decades, that was end of the line, you know, for many of our drivers, which is, which is unfortunate sport, you know, those days could be quite cruel at times. How did you get into a car? I heard you talk one time saying that you guys would look around the driver's meeting on the opening race and not know who was going to be next to you next week. Well, there was the reality of it all, you know, it's uh, uh, the beginning of the season, as I said many times, you know, where the driver's meeting and uh, you, I never dwelled on that in a sense, but you couldn't help it by looking around and thinking, oh, I wonder who's going to be here at the end of the season. I was not. Uh, you, you know, it, it was inevitable, you know, to think of that. It, you didn't dwell on that, but, uh, you know, uh, reality is reality, and, uh, and it's unfortunate. You know, there was... Uh, some years we lost as many as six guys, you know, in one year, in one, in one series. Uh, use that. So, uh, two accidents. Two accidents, we lost four guys. Each accident, two, two drivers. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, one of them was my teammate, you know, Dick Katz. It was uh, Red Rigo and Judd Larson in Redding and uh, in uh, California, Gardena. Uh, Ascot, racetrack, uh, Dick Hackett was my teammate, and Don Branson was still the same actor. So, and that was brutal, you know, it's just, uh, but again, uh, you know, you were, you knew that uh, it could be, you know, it could be tough. Uh, and and uh, I lost some of my closest friends, you know. Uh, Billy Foster and I were like, brothers, you know, lost him. Uh, he was the one that, uh, you know, he was driving Indy cars, but also stock cars, and 
He's the one that says, Mario, you've got to get out of sprint cars. It's too dangerous. Here he goes, and, and he, he meets the end uh, in a stock car, a Riverside qualifying uh, for the Motor Trend 500. And uh, so there you go. You know, it's uh, uh, the fit, you know, and, and all the different disciplines of sports still, you know, could be very cool. And uh, uh, that was that was the fact. And uh, But, uh, you know, if you were going to be in it, you know, you just couldn't dwell on that. You still go on. And it was not easy. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't. Um. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's the very first incident that got me into racing, and it, it's tragic why, but it just, like, stuck with me when I was 10 years old, was watching the Daytona 500 when Dale Earnhardt got killed. But just, I was out to dinner with my family after the race, and when it came on the news that he had passed away, the entire restaurant went silent. And all I heard for the next three hours were Dale Earnhardt stories. And I was like, wow, like, a race car driver is this impactful to somebody and that's what really like i started doing research and that's what got me into racing but like I, that's why i'm happy i'm talking to you about this because like from the other side you're a driver you're going through this as well like i can only imagine like what it's like to show up at the racetrack the next week or like that day even yep yeah believe me uh, no i know all that unfortunately yeah 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 when uh Billy Foster, when he was killed at Riverside in turn nine, uh, next one to go out to qualify. And, uh, and he and I were rooming together, so enough said. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, yeah. Let, let's switch gears to something happier. Um, yeah. <laughs> winning the Formula One championship, how satisfying was that for you? Well, you know, Nick, that was my ultimate dream. Obviously, as you can imagine, the first time, the first Formula One race that I ever witnessed was the, the Italian Grand Prix in Monza in 1954 at age 14. Aldo and I and some friends took us there to see that race. And, and as I said earlier, my absolute title, first title was Alberto Scotti. Of course, he was driving for Ferrari, he was current world champion. And... Uh, and that's where the dream, the solid dream began. That's from there on, there was no plan B, you know, in our life. I had no idea where, you know, where and how and if. But uh, we never, we never stopped uh, thinking that uh, we just kept that mindset. And then uh, getting into Formula One later and then uh, finally being Formula One full time, uh, then it was... Uh, up to me to cultivate this and uh, and and can you imagine I, I clinched the world championship right there in Monza wow you know in 78 <laughs> wow and and uh, 14 years later and, and, and under terrible circumstances because she lost my you know, one of my best buddies uh, you know and uh, Ronnie Peterson of course and and uh, my teammate, but uh, but it happened there in Monza. And uh, the year before, I won the Grand Prix in Monza. I won that year as well, but they were got penalized. Uh, apparently, it, uh, got penalized for jumping the start. But uh, actually, 
Jill Villeneuve was next to me on the restart after uh, uh, Ronnie he had his accident, and uh, and uh, and then I reacted. I didn't go. I reacted, and they penalized him, but also penalized me. And I was going to protest, but after you know Ronnie's incident, uh, I uh, you know we decided you know nothing is good, but. Uh, but I, I won that race. I won that. And Jill second, it was, uh, and Nicky Lada was a distant, distant third. And, and he got, <laughs> he declared him the winner. Oh, wow. You know? and, yeah. But I still, you know, clinched the world championship right there. So a lot of events. But can you imagine how I felt the year before? I won the Italian Grand Prix, you know, at that time. And I won uh, the thousand kilometers in Monza and, 73 with the uh, Alfa Romeo. So, uh, had the opportunity to race in Monza, which was to me, uh, was the, the ultimate dream to, to reach there and then, and then clinching what was my, again, my most ambitious, uh, uh, goal, you know, in, in my career. Uh, so how do you write a script for that? You know, uh, when you look back and, you know, and, out of so many things, I've been so blessed, so blessed, and I know it. Take nothing for granted. I like that. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Full circle to go from seeing your first race at Monza, falling in love with sport, and then clinching it there. That's you can't yeah. write the script for that. Yeah, yeah, it couldn't, couldn't be any better. Yeah, for sure in life. So that's why I count my blessings every day. Um present day can you tell me about your eye racing experience <laughs> <laughs> because i'm I on eye racing every day <laughs> i crash a lot because <laughs> I just, man i know i i gotta be able to hustle through there better and um and somehow it lets go and then it's uh once it lets go it's hard to really catch it um so frustrating for me. Um, you know, the, the thing, when you're used to a certain feel, you know, of a race car, the real feel, and then try to adapt that, you know, to a uh, fiction, you know, like, a, uh, you know, this uh, simulator, uh, it's really tough. It's really, really tough. I get so frustrated. Mm-hmm. I, uh, now and then I'm ready to throw the steering wheel out the window, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, I do like that iRacing was so creative and they worked with NASCAR and IndyCar and everybody too last year during the shutdown of the pandemic to have races on TV. Like, that was cool and events that people could watch. It's awesome, man. It's, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, uh, the opportunity to, uh, you know, without a passport to uh, to race from Elkhart Lake to Spa and uh and uh, you can go to Hungary, go to Italy, race uh, anywhere around the world, and then come back and then uh, race on the dirt, <laughs> change cars, every, you know. Uh, same day, you can drive three different types of cars somewhere or more, depending on how much time you want to spend on there. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's probably the only positive thing that came out of the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. with you. 
I agree. Um, but speaking of like different feels, how do you think, and you did this a lot, obviously, Jimmy Johnson's career transition. How do you think Jimmy's going to do this year? Oh, he's, uh, he's going to be forced to be reckoned with, you know, uh, I think sooner than later because, uh, you know, his, uh, and the quality of his uh, ability as a driver is, you know, obviously uh, undisputable. And uh, and he's with a, he's a great team with Ganassi. He knows he has great equipment. And uh, and the thing is, you know, he was so long for so many years in stock cars that, you know, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a huge difference to adapt to these uh, Indy cars because it's just to find the limit properly and all that. And um, it's the other way around. Like uh, when we went from uh, single seaters to stock car, the first thing that you do in a stock car, you overdrive it because uh, you reach the limit so quick by comparison. And with him, it's the other way around. So, uh, and he's smart enough to avoid disaster, you know. So he's taking his time. Uh, but uh, I guarantee you that um, he, he's beginning to have it, put his arms around it and. Uh, I just love, love the fact that he's doing it. He won't have to do it. And that shows me, you know, the passion for ride, for driving. Uh, that's beautiful. It's great to see uh, the, uh, you know, the crossover of different drivers, uh, you know, from one discipline to the other. All these things are very healthy for the sport. And it's one thing that, uh, for me, I have such a special appreciation for that because I, I felt that I derived the biggest satisfaction out of my career by uh, being able to have the opportunity to race uh, and, 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 and have some good results in, uh, by crossing different disciplines, the major disciplines. And um, he's doing exactly that, and I know what his objectives are. And the beautiful thing is that from everything that I, that I see, uh, uh, you know, by just chatting with him and so forth, he's having the time of his life. He's really enjoying it. Good. So, uh, this is all good stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for him. Like, and I'm rooting for him to do well. He's one of my favorites. I am big time. I'm rooting for him. Yeah. Um, last couple things I've got for you because I know you've got to run in a second. What are you up to now? Like, I know you're a very very busy guy. Uh, I have a lot of I have, I have everything that I really need on my plate. Quite honestly, it's, uh, uh, the fact is that uh, you know you know we have obviously business interests, but uh, uh, also the sport. Sport keeps me very busy in every way. Uh, I mean, I you know I follow obviously the IndyCar race because I do a lot of driving there. You know, with the two seater, but. Um, you know, I have big interest in Formula One. I'm going, to, I'm going to be doing much more traveling in the future, planning uh, Formula One. And um, especially, you know, to see that, uh, you know, Michael is going to be involved. And uh, so a lot of things on the plate, a lot of things to look forward to. I can't wait for the season to start for all these reasons. I mean, that uh, every, every major discipline, you know, really uh, possesses, such great talent, so many things to, uh, you know, to look forward to see how they work out. Uh, Formula One, you know, I want to see that um, rivalry between, uh, uh, you know, between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton to continue. And, and 
and then seen you know how uh, McLaren you know with some of their you know with uh, uh, Daniel Ricardo and of course uh, you know Lando Norris uh, they're about to see what Ferrari you know is going to have with the new rules with a new package you know what they what they're going to uh, you know uh, what they're going to come up with and and so again uh, yeah uh, it's, it's real fans and so forth there's uh, a lot of anxiety and I can't wait for the season to start I'm right there with you so I have two last things to ask you one and just this is something off the top of my head what do you think makes somebody successful like I'm getting a lot of inspiration just from you talking for the last 50 minutes but what makes someone successful or what can you do well Nick I think I think it started with passion. You must possess, must have the real, true passion for what you're doing. Love what you're doing. Look forward to what you're going to do. Um, just looking back at, um, you know, even Elio Castroneves, for instance, you know, at age like 46, uh, he's got as much passion as any youngster out there. And the passion is what giving him, you know, this uh, the drive and the will, you know, to, to, to achieve uh, these results. I mean, it's, uh, and it's, that's what I felt that always that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't wait. I, today, I can't wait to get even the <laughs> dog on two-seater. I just, I just, uh, you gotta love driving. And, uh, and when you're driven by that, and uh, the results will come, the results will come and that, but that's, you got to start with that. you got to have passion and love for what you're doing. Perfect. Um, last question for you. Will I see you at the St. Pete Grand Prix? You bet. <laughs> you bet. I saw you on a wait a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, but I'll yeah, hopefully see you down there. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, we have a, I have a condo in Clearwater Beach, so it's almost like a, a home race for me. You know, oh, perfect. we go down there and I sleep in my own bed. Perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I, I, I love it. That, that's an event that uh, has grown so well over the years. It's uh, really well organized, and uh, the track, uh, I think it's very, very technical. Um, it's got all the elements. I love it. I love the St. Pete Grand Prix. I think they just started doing track construction yesterday, actually, so... Yeah. I might walk down there, but yeah, I hope to see you there, and... Honestly, Mr. Andretti, thank you so much for your time. You have no idea how much of an inspiration you've been for my whole life, and it's an honor to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your day. You bet. You thank, too. Thank you, sir. Bye. <laughs> hey there. This is Cassandra Pinataro reminding you to stream Free Woman by Cassandra on Spotify. Or check out the new music I have coming out soon at You Know Cassandra on Instagram and TikTok. And thanks for listening to For the Ladies Podcast. All right, gang. I hope that was fun for you to relive. It was fun for me to relive. Um, you know, like I've always said, the podcast started in 2019, which now it's 2024. Um, and it's crazy to see how well it's doing how much fun it still is i love recording i love doing the editing and um just getting these conversations documented is awesome having the you know the guests be able to tell their story whatever it may be 
is awesome to me. And I love hearing it. I love engaging and getting to know people better. And also having the chance to talk to my heroes like we did with Mario Andretti. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you guys listen. So thank you again for listening to the re-release of Mario Andretti on For the Ladies podcast. And I will talk to you guys soon. Later.